Welcome to the World of Intelligence, a podcast for you to discover the latest analysis of global military and security trends within the open source defense intelligence community. Now onto the episode with your host, Harry Kemsley. Hello, and welcome to this episode of World of Intelligence at Jane's. I'm Harry Kemsley, your host as usual. And as usual, I have my co-host, Sean Corbett. Hello, Sean. Hi, Harry. Good to be here as ever. As ever. Good to see you, Sean. So, Sean, I can't remember the number, but I'm very confident that there have been very few podcast episodes we've done where we haven't touched on the use, the problems with, etc., with artificial intelligence. I think we've used the letters AI numerous times. And I think it's about time that we actually took that topic on by itself. So today, uh, I am delighted to invite uh, an expert in artificial intelligence, uh, Keith Deer. Hello, Keith. Hello, Harry. Keith Deer is Managing Director of Fujitsu's Center for Cognitive and Advanced Technologies. He previously served as an expert advisor to the UK Prime Minister on defense modernization and the integrated review. A former 18-year intelligence officer for the Royal Air Force, He's also served in numerous operational campaigns. He holds a doctorate in experimental psychology from the University of Oxford, an MA in terrorism and counterterrorism from King's College London, and is also a fellow at the defense and security think tank, RUSI. So Keith, let's get started um, by making sure that we're all on the same page about what we mean by artificial intelligence. Perhaps you could do us the privilege of just giving us your understanding of what we mean by artificial intelligence to get us started. So definitions of AI are contested everywhere, like all interesting things, right? And we, sure. we used to work on terrorism and counterterrorism. We still don't have a single good definition of what that is. AI is really similar. Yeah. Um, if you get the kind of very the, the brief potted history of AI, you have the cybernetics movement that came out of World War II and Norbert Wiener. Interestingly, as an aside for a military audience, one of Norbert Wiener's um, ways into understanding what he called cybernetics um, was through working on anti-aircraft artillery that would be automatically slewed. So you had a feedback loop of a sensor that would sense something, would slew the anti-aircraft artillery and then would shoot it down. And he was like, well, this is more effective than people at doing this. If we have that, um, that feedback loop of sensing something and then you have um, a processing in the middle that makes sense of the information coming in and then that directs an action in the real world. Well, that cybernetic loop is common to humans, it's common to animals. And he, he wrote a book, famous book called Cybernetics in Human and the Machine, um, which, which describes all this. Um, and then in 1956, one of the founding fathers of the modern movement of AI, John McCarthy, came up with the term artificial intelligence to rebrand cybernetics. Why did he do it? Well, for all of the best reasons in academia, because he wanted funding and artificial intelligence was much more compelling than cybernetics. Um, so then you have the emergent field of AI, which really is just a continuation of the cybernetics movement, was, but, but was beginning to think less in symbolic terms and more in what we understand today as machine learning. So the idea that you could build models that sense adapted and responded and learned from the data. It wasn't that you encoded a kind of recipe or a menu of human intelligence. So AI in, in that sense can be divided neatly into two fields. There's symbolic AI, which um, it, most famous through the Gary Kasparov example, when IBM's Deep Blue beat um, Gary Kasparov at chess in 1997. So that's symbolic AI. So you can think of it as a recipe, a kind of if-then-else, an encoding of everything humans know, lots of different games of chess, then it wins. Incredibly complex, can deliver superhuman performance, but is in the end limited by what we know. Yep. Um, 
Then you have the field of machine learning, which is the one that's in the news every day since about 2010. Um, that's the canonical example is um, AlphaGo Zero beating Kiji at uh, the Go game go that learns from data what does that give you well it, it learns from data it spots patterns we wouldn't have spotted um and it gives you superhuman performance but it lacks explainability and um crudely put because there are variations on on the underlying algorithms but that it, it's the, it's that kind of neural networks um that is the modern machine learning that we talk about when we talk about large language models or any of the the breakthroughs in the last decade so so what what where, where does that leave like what is ai the reason this is such a contested field is we continuously redefine it and right. and i think about the best definition that most of us end up settling on is it, it ends up being all of those things that um those things that a otherwise would have required a human to do. Um, and then we end up leaving, well, what is intelligence? Well, it's all those things that machines can't yet do. And there's an increasingly narrow range of those. So we keep redefining what we mean by intelligence according to how we define artificial intelligence. So it's a, another way of saying all that is it's an essentially contested concept, but hopefully that gives you some idea of what it is we're yeah. talking about. Absolutely, sure. Yeah, I was just going to say, as ever, Keith, you know, a PhD level of something that I would probably give the Luddites version of. But, you know, as you say, I think the only consistent thing about definitions of AI is the fact that there is no consistent definition of AI. Yeah. But, but uh, I've just been looking at the DOD um, definitions at the moment, actually, and, and even they're not settled, actually. Um, but they do try and make something that is actually you know, um, applicable because they've got to keep it down to basic levels. And I, yeah. I think as you said, you know, th their definition that I like uh, is computer systems designed to replicate a range of human functions and continuously get better at assigned tasks. So for me, picking out the the specific activities yeah. and against this, uh, an implied task to do things that humans could do. And of course, we can talk about the future next that humans can't do. Okay. All right. Well, look, if we agree then that the definition is constantly evolving and by the way i think that's probably appropriate because technology is constantly evolving therefore what it can do and how you define it probably needs to evolve with it um what i, what I want to try and pull us towards then is okay so we've defined the almost undefinable what is ai although we've had a, a great insight to the history of it and what that might mean for us today let's move on then to so where is it being used in the mm. intelligence community now in the recent past, Keith, we've had various uh, contributors and guests on talking about things like deepfakes and how AI is supporting that and indeed counter deepfake AI technology. We've talked about how it can be used in the relatively dull but important aspects of collect and collate, for example, and how it finds, for example, again, you know, sentiment and so on. These are the sorts of things that we've heard about. But how would you how would you summarize the uses of AI looking at it through the prism of national security and, and the technologies being used in that sort of context. So I think, I mean, the, the neat summary comes from, I guess, in some ways, the, the centre that I now run. It's the Centre for Cognitive Technologies. And the, the reason it's cognitive technologies is it's any technology that draws insight or foresight from data. There's a whole raft of psychologists out there, um, Seligman and Baumeister being two of the prominent ones who would describe humans as homo prospectus, um, by which it means we're not wise humans, but rather we are humans that anticipate the future and plan for it. That sounds a lot like what we all did in the intelligence world, right? And what the OSIM world does today. So anything that draws insight or foresight from data. So what that immediately tells you is that um, the cognitive technologies, which includes, and is centrally is AI, um, 
cover the full range of the intelligence cycle. And there are multiple reports out there that can, can give you an idea of d different elements it can do. Um, and I think, I mean, we're interested in how you might apply it, for example, in iStar tasking um, to make sure that you've got the right asset in the right place at the right time. That mm -hmm. seems to me a fundamentally symbolic problem, um, mm -hmm. which is another way of describing symbolic systems is an expert system. So if, if you can encode what a practitioner can do, does in a kind of linear linear way, mm -hmm. i.e. if this, then that, else X, um, then you can encode it into symbolic AI. If it's a thing where the human is searching in vast data sets, well, what machine learning can already do is search in a kind of mathematical breadth or a breadth of different information sources beyond anything that a human can begin to do yeah. and equally can think in a recursive depth beyond anything that a human can do. So I know that you know, I know that you know that I know, therefore I should. And we can get up to roughly six or seven levels of that. There is no practical limit on how far a machine can do that. Um, and that's why we talk in the center about um, cognitive technologies revolutionizing decision making. So that gives you the, the high level uh, kind of academic answer to your question. In, in practical terms, the gap between what AI and ML and the way we're talking about it can do and what it is actually doing in the intelligence world is vast. And I suspect that we'll come on to some of the barriers to adoption. Um, but I mean, if, if it's insight or foresight from data, I think it would be a bit of a fool's errand for me to try to say, well, it can do this or it can do this, it can do this, because we'll be here for another you know, three days. Um, yes. <laughs> it, if it's cognitive, it's about decision making. There are decisions at every stage of the intelligence cycle. That's where you apply AI and machine learning. Where do you think it, Sean, I'll come to you in just a second. Where do you think it is currently the most effective and where do you see concerns about the effectiveness of the use of AI in that intelligence cycle you talked about? So I think I think where we are applying, again, depending on the, the tyranny of definitions, but where it is being applied most at the moment is in the analysis of vast quantity yeah. quantities of image data. Um, okay. And I think um, that there is movement towards trying to do that for full motion video capture, where the, the number of hours add up to something like seven years last time I looked at this, and that was like 2015 of, of like full motion video footage captured from um, various assets that you will know only mm -hmm. too well. Um, mm -hmm. I think that computer vision element is it's well understood that humans have been completely overwhelmed by the amount of data we need to search um, sure. that the, the process by which our imagery analysts under, undertake is broadly a linear function and equally that having models that can just search vast amounts of data and spot things we wouldn't have spotted is incredibly useful. Um, so I think it's it's principally in that element of I suppose um, you described that as the processing of information right before you have to go and say well what does this mean what should we do. Yeah. Um, I think overwhelmingly that's where the applications are focused because we know we've long been since since been defeated by the size of the data sets we're searching in. Um, I think in, in OSINT, you're beginning to see um, the application of um, similar algorithms, but being used to um, predict information in things like um, financial data um, right. in, in sort of vast online data sources. And you see it being increasingly applied for what you might think of kind of fin financial crime, but which ends up, you know, you see the kind of investigations Bellingcat does ends up being just as relevant to national security. So sure. again, in theory, everywhere in practice focused on, on computer vision and on vast data sets that have long since defeated us or that we didn't previously exploit. Yeah, I, we'll, we'll come back to why it might not have been spread elsewhere in terms of its use uh, in just a moment. But Sean, I know you wanted to, to step in at that point. Yeah, I think Keith, Keith's really hit the main point for me and, and your starting point. That I know that, that your two big things, the insight and the foresight is key in terms of where we need to go and want to go with artificial intelligence. It's the so what that I've always known, uh, uh, talked about, you know, it's doing that extra. What does this mean? 
Yeah. Um, and that's why the definitions do really matter for the, for our world, because you, you've mentioned one end of the spectrum, which at the moment is what I think most people understand as AI, is that it's taking vast quantities of data that the human being just simply cannot uh, absorb and do anything with and managing them in an effective way, collecting, collating, managing them in an effective way that, that the human then can do that. So that's one end of the spectrum. But where I would like to get to, obviously, ultimately, is, is the ability to support that insight and foresight. And the last thing that you said that was really important is to assist uh, decision making. It was interesting what you said about machine learning, because, I mean, there's another debate, probably a pub debate over, is machine learning a subset of AI or is it separate? You know, and I know there are different views on that, and I've had a few arguments about that one as well. But I think the machine learning element is quite important because when you are talking about huge amounts of data, and I think about the, you know, the now historical little green men all over, you know, um, eastern Ukraine that were really, high, in fact, impossible to actually um, identify on the vast quantities of imagery. But if you, as long as you've got the right training data and you train the algorithms yeah. correctly you know, the the AI, if you want to call it that, can actually spot these things yeah. far quicker, far more efficiently than the human being. Well, I think that's right. I think the, the other the other kind of, uh, forgive me for asking a question in response to the question, but I think it's also like, what timeline are we talking about for what AI can do? Um, if, if it was 2010 uh, and we were having this conversation, you know, DeepMind was what, uh, I think it had four employees and no products and there's no AI anywhere outside the lab. Um, now look where we are. And every major breakthrough between 2012 and 2018 has come with increases in computational power through mm. the application of machine learning. And I think it's easy to lose track of just how far and fast that has gone. So um, there's been a 300,000 times increase in computational power between 2012 and 2018 alone. If that's your mobile phone battery, it would now last eight years on a single charge. So it gives you like the idea of just how far this has gone. And there's a, a guy called Rich Sutton who, uh, who writes and thinks about this stuff. He describes it as the bitter lesson in which w we imagine that in order to match human performance, we're going to need these really complex expert systems that that spend we spend hours working out how do Harry and Sean analyze this problem. And then we encode it in this really complex code. And because we're so smart, it has to be incredibly complex. And what we've actually seen is just just applying massive amounts of compute to very large data sets and adding more parameters over time is enough to give a superhuman performance in, in multiple fields. Um, and what we're now seeing is phase shifts. So, so you get linear improvements in the performance of models with increases in computational power. Mm -hmm. But you also get these things that computer scientists are terrified of calling emergence because intelligence in the human brain is emergent. Nevertheless, I think there's a reasonable case to be made. I don't want to wander in too deep in that controversy, but there is a reasonable case to be said that this is emergence. But you get phase shifts, so things that you could not have predicted the model would do, and then you add computational power and suddenly it can. So an example would be in ChatGPT, suddenly it, it, it couldn't do anything in Persian, suddenly it could do accurate Persian question and answering, and we didn't think it would be able to do that previously. It couldn't do arithmetic, suddenly it could do arithmetic. It couldn't translate intelligence processing automation, suddenly it could do it. And so these phase shifts, are one, that's one of the reasons I don't, we definitely shouldn't get into the ex existential threat debate because another like podcast in itself. But the reason people are worried is because of these emergent capabilities or, or phase shifts. Why should we care in the OSINT world? Well, because we're saying, well, what will it be able to do in 10 years? Well, we've right. already seen things that in 2010, you would have been laughed at for claiming that machine learning could do just through these massive increases in computational power. And now we're seeing these phase shifts of it suddenly being able to do things. And I think from a national security perspective, that 
that that is worrying but if we stick to what can it do it's also really exciting um yeah. i mean it, it begins to imply like spotting your little green men well maybe maybe it can spot them much much earlier than we can in data sets that we would never have thought to look at um as long as you can tell it what to optimize against and of course that's a fundamental challenge but as long as you can tell it what you want the model to optimize against there's i think we will see that superhuman performance on the ever increasing amount of data that we see available through open source information. Yeah, Keith, do you think those phase shifts you described, are they accelerating? Is the time between a phase shift shortening as, as the system, is, is, if, let's not go into the emergent piece, as you say, because that is another podcast, but is the, the rate of change, the rate of improvement actually accelerating? So the answer to that question is yes. The 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 corollary to it is how long can that continue for? And that right. is another super contentious debate. Um, so a, it was a paper in December last year from the large language model company, AI generative AI company, Anthropic, rival to OpenAI, um, that they published. Where, if I remember, there were eight examples they gave of phase shifts of things that models, large like their large language model, couldn't do, and then suddenly could. Um, and I, that that is a relatively new phenomena. Um, and increases in computational power where we're expecting the speed and cost of training our models to drop. What was I told the other day? I think it's 16-fold in the autumn with the release of the next generation of processors by a commercial rival who I'm not going to name. Um, so <laughs> um, so it, it, if you look at that, I think we can expect to continue to see an increase in those kind of phase shifts. Um, but I mean, we, we, we're in an era here of radical uncertainty as well. And so that seems likely, but I mean, it would be again, a bit of a fool's errand to say, this is precisely what's gonna happen, which because we just yeah. don't know. So is there, a, I mean, for the audience of which I'm a member, by the way, that doesn't really understand how AI does what it does and the phase shift acceleration, is there a reason to be concerned about that? Is there a reason for us to be worried that we are, quote, not in control, out of control, we're out of control with what AI is capable of doing and learning to do? So, so that that is such a fraught debate. Um, m my view is is if you're thinking on the longer time scale, yes, I think the idea, like the idea, if you imagine intelligence to be a hierarchy at which, and I don't yeah. think this is absolute, but which, which broadly humans are at the top of. You know, there's an argument I read once, and I've been misattributing ever since. But the, the reason the tiger in the cage isn't because its weapons aren't better than ours, not because it's not stronger than ours, it's because it's not smarter than us. So do yeah. we just end up being the tiger? Like I, I think there's a philosophical and important argument there. I, the, the problem with that argument is it breaks down with its collision with practical reality because people say, right, we need a pause on AI research. Well, what, what the hell are you pausing? Are you banning statistics? It's are you going to ban yeah, biology? Um, my, like my, at best, you might delay it, but then you're delaying it whilst others accelerate, and that's probably not where we want to yeah. be. So, uh, so we'll, should we we'll be worried probably? Yes, but yeah. Yeah, my, my, my question, Keith, is more in the context of, you know, within intelligence, we talk about the assurance of the data and the intelligence we're working with for decision support. Yep. And we seek to trust the process. And Sean, mm. I'm going to come to you on this because I know it's a matter that you hold close to your heart. We seek to trust it because we understand it, we can trust it, and therefore we get a level of assurance mm. in the data and intelligence. If it's running, quote, into a black box that's accelerating yep. away from us, then the ability to trust and to be assured by it degrades in a human sense. John, I'm going to let you step in here because I know this is definitely something you want to talk about, the human on and in the loop, but go ahead. <laughs> yeah, and this is the conundrum that the intelligence analyst and, and actually the decision makers are, are grappling with right now. You know, to what extent do you trust the AI you know, uh, basic term I know, but you trust the AI to to actually do the cognitive stuff that then helps you to make the decision. Now, you know, in for the analyst who, and we've talked about this many times, in fact, we did a podcast on it, you know, tradecraft is king and you have to be able to show you're working and that's never going to change. 
um, because you ha somebody has to be accountable for this stuff. So well, never, and I think never is a strong word. I think, and we we say, we say never. I think okay. From Keith is there is a time which we could foresee in which tradecraft might actually go into a black box marked marked AI. But anyway, sorry to interrupt. I say never because you know uh, within the intelligence community we're still looking at tradecraft stuff. That and Neil Wiley, sure. my good friend on last, we would say no. Um, tradecraft does evolve, and I, I I agree with that. But we are still absolutely you know um, driven by the policies that say. If you've come up with analysis, you need to tell us where you got that analysis from. And if you can't do that, that and this is the, this is the cognitive bit that is really tricky. And I was just to finish off my first point was I think that the amount of trust depends on what you're going to do the results of that artificial intelligence with. If you're talking about kinetic activity or something like that, where you know the, you you do the algorithms that comes out with you know drop that bomb on that target. You have to have someone in the loop, in my view, that says, right, okay, taking everything into consideration and the, you know, international humanitarian law and law of armed conflict that says it has to be proportional, it has to be distinctive, et cetera, et cetera. There is a judgment call there in terms of, okay, is that, is the, is the concrete military advantage strong enough that you can take a certain amount of risk? And that is where I think it gets difficult for people to say, okay, right, we've got really good algorithms, we can let that make the decision for us. That is different, I think, personally, from using um, algorithms that actually help you make a judgment in terms of supporting decision making. You could all, because of the comeback of that, of course, it well, depends on what the decision making is. But but this, for me, is the, is, is the crux of the discussion. Um, that, that, you know, I, I think that there's certainly the intelligence community and other communities, I think, are, are struggling with. So let me centre that, Keith, because I think that's a really, really key point. So as I said, as I said, trust in the data, in the decision support, giving a level of assurance for decision making. Sean's asserted that tradecraft will need to develop. We had a conversation about that with, a, with an eminent tradecraft expert in recent times. Where does AI sit in this discussion about tradecraft, trust, decision support and insurer assurance. How do you feel about the introduction of black box, if that's what it is? So there's a huge amount here. Uh, I think it's going to be really, um, it, I've been looking forward to this part of the discussion. I, I, look, I think firstly, um, before you can have explainable AI, you first have, have to have explainable humans. Um, it, well, I think all of us have worked for many senior commanders for whom their decisions are quite black box. Um, and if you force them to rigorously interrogate, okay, could you please give me the logic on which that was based, you know, the premises that lead to the deduction that have led, led you to give that order, what data is that based on? The answers you get, shall we say, might be uh, less than robust. Um, I think if you look at the... Um, the science, you know, Tetlock's work on super forecasting. We know that the forecasters who are the most confident are also the most likely to be believed and also the most likely to be wrong. So the people that we trust the most and that um, have, uh, I hesitate to say this, realizing present company as I start down this road, but the people who have progressed in that system, I, mean, I did okay as well. Um, you, you know, you've got to look at yourself and think, well, did I progress because of my confidence or my forecasting accuracy? You know, was I really that good at insight and foresight or was I just really good at convincing people to, that, to listen to me? Um, well, and there's an, you know, there's, an, there's verbal fluency is another thing that uh, that correlates with your chances of belie being believed, but doesn't correlate with your chances of being right. So there are so many limits to to human um, forecasting and the way humans make decisions. Um, 
I mean, another example, which, you know, we, we, we said we might come to. So confabulation is an example, right? Mm-hmm. Confabulation is a, is, is a term that comes out of the neuroscience and psychology literature where there's a guy called Michael Gazniger, and he um, ran uh, experiments on split brain patients. So these are people who have epilepsy. They have like um, huge, like um, too much, too much interconnectivity between the left and right side of the brain. So they cut the corpus callosum so the left and right brain can't communicate anymore. And what that means um, is that one side of the brain um, is receiving one set of inputs and it can't communicate with the other side. Right, so the point here is that without going all through the detail of the experiments is that he found that if you presented to one side of the brain an image that the other side of the brain couldn't see, well, the left side has the bit that does our voice. It does the thinking. It does all of what we're doing now. Um, and it would make up completely plausible stories to connect what the right brain was indicating, pointing at with the with the hand, for example. So it would make up these these hugely convincing stories to cover gaps in things that it did not know. And he called that confabulation. The fact that we make up plausible sounding stories to cover gaps in our knowledge. What do we have with large language models now? Well, when it doesn't know something, it confabulates. Um, so there are a whole range. I could go through all of the different kind of psychological biases, illusion of explanatory depth. We think we understand things until people say, do you really understand it? And then you discover that actually the detailed workings of the thing you thought you understood you don't. Humans have loads of limitations that we don't discuss. I think that really matters um, in a practical way in relation to the, the conversation we've just had. Yeah. Uh, if I may, Keith, what I think you're saying is we need to understand just how flawed we are as decision makers, as humans, and that therefore accusations of flaws in AI, which are potentially more predictable in terms of what they do and how they do it, is actually a lesser of the two evils. Is that is that a fair summary? It's a fair summary. And if you'll allow me to bring it back down to earth, um, yeah, if you talk do. about, for example, um, the, the requirement to discriminate, to positively identify your target, suppose and this is not really a hypothetical example, but you you could deploy a computer vision system inside, for example, an armored vehicle that would automatically find an enemy combatant. It would look for the things that a soldier would look for, right? I can't remember all the S's, but there was shape, shadow, and those things, right? And you're like, okay, there's that. Um, There's this person, and maybe they have to be in uniform, or maybe not, because it's like, so you've got all of the parameters that you set beforehand um, in your um, rules of engagement and delegated authorities and the such like. and your model can't always tell you precisely why it's, it's decided that that thing there is a target and that thing there is not. But nor can your soldier, and particularly not under huge amounts of pressure in the battlefield. Mm-hmm. So all that really matters under those circumstances, and I think this is just as true for deliberate targeting as time-sensitive targeting, um, all that really matters is does the model have a lower false positive and false negative rate than the human? Does it like decide that the target is a um, is a military target accurately when it is um, or less frequently than does it make errors in that judgment less frequently than a human and in the inverse does it um, mistakenly identify less frequently than a human if it has that lower false positive and false negative rate my argument for a long time has been we have a moral obligation to delegate authority to machines under those circumstances and not only do we have a moral obligation but because things only really change in defense under kind of legal pressure or the pressure of defeat in war i think we're as likely to end up in court because the mother of a civilian who has been killed or a soldier's mother um you know when the, the soldier has been killed for not making a decision when when the, when the model would have made them you know the, if you delegate authority that person would not have died i think we're as likely to end up in a court case sued for not having delegated authority to a machine that demonstrably had a lower false positive and false negative rate yeah. um than we are for delegating it yeah a, a fascinating fascinating conversation this um i'm remembered 
as you're describing it, situation in another part of the world, hot and sandy, where a young man with a toy gun in his hand ran at a, a patrol. By the way, the weapon, the weapon, the toy was made of metal. So if there's any sort of detection of metal, he was running towards a checkpoint with what appeared to be a weapon. The soldier on point decided to walk up to this young man, cuff him around the ear and send him on his way, explaining as best he could in broken Arabic that that was actually a bad, bad idea. What you're saying to me is that's a decision that could have been made by a machine with enough appropriate computational power, I think is what you're saying. And that the false positives around that kind of circumstance, and I will come to you in just a second, Sean, I can see you're leaning forward to get in, um, are a moral obligation that we should be moving to a place where we can reduce the number of errors in these ethical ethical situations. Fascinating. Sean. Well, first, I was just about to agree entirely with Keith, which will surprise him uh, <laughs> in, in no end. But this is another really key part of this for the open source intelligence. Well, any intelligence perspective, actually, is that, you know, how do you can you trust the human um, more than the machine or vice versa? And, and I do agree with you, Keith, actually, there are times when actually, you know, People are not as, um, I've got to be careful what I say there, but uh, not as logical, perhaps, as the machine would be. Now, again, a little, little bit of a dip with no names or pack drills, but Keith and I were both experienced, um, a, a, we, we were both intelligence, senior intelligence specialists for a specific commander in theatre who, because of his worldview, refused to look at our assessments, which were pretty aligned not just with ourselves but the community in terms of the, a campaign assessment and and he, he practically forbid us to actually brief anything on that saying yeah my military judgment says this now that is all sorts of conscious and unconscious bias but it was based on you know our cognitive approach with lots and lots of reports that we were then assimilating ourselves i just wonder and i was thinking about this before the uh, before the podcast is had he been um given a definitive assessment from an ai model would he have been any worse or any better in terms of doing that well i think in this case the ego is was all there and it didn't matter what evidence was in front of him but but what that got me to think is that you know to what extent are the the senior decision makers or any decision makers um going to be biased either in favor of or against ai models and that is something that the community is definitely going to have to embrace and of course the answer is a combination of both no i i, I mean really uh, i was going to agree in, agree in turn i'm not sure in that particular individual it would have made much of a dent and i think that that begins to highlight um the adoption challenges right um you, one of the things i wrote in uh, way back in 2018 on on ai models was um was that um it would drive rigor into decision making. The application of AI machine learning, so there's an article for Air Power Review actually, would one of the things it would do is drive rigor into decision making by forcing us to be explicit in our premises, our logic, the evidence and data on which we were making decisions. Um, what I think I misunderstood, and perhaps this is what maturity brings, is um, is the problem with that is it holds up a mirror to humans that most of us don't want to look in. Um, and and uh, and when you take that, in, not just in defence, to any senior decision maker and you start talking about the flaws in how they make decisions, I think most people know it in truth. I think most people know 
uh, when you really push. Um, but the last thing anybody wants to do is, is acknowledge openly how flawed current senior decision making is in multiple different domains. And so I think it's a massive adoption challenge. You're, you're, uh, you're unraveling the, uh, the imposter syndrome that we all suffer from and work within a mask increasingly well as we get more mature. Let me um, just pivot this conversation just slightly to something that we've discussed, Sean, in the past about the adoption of open source as a source of decision support. Um, and we've said many times, Sean, have we not, that there are still far too many parts of the intelligence community that are not using the abundant uh, potential of open source. Let me pivot that conversation or the principle of that conversation, Keith, to you in terms of, so given the moral obligation, given the potential, lower force positives, et cetera, why do we think AI is not yet more fully embraced in intelligence, in government perhaps, but certainly in intelligence given the, the nature of this podcast? I think, I think there's a whole range of reasons. Like, <laughs> I mean, one of, one of the things I've said, perhaps slightly controversially, but hopefully fun, is AI is a bit like teenage sex. Everybody is talking about it. Everybody thinks everybody else is doing it. Very few people are actually doing anything. <laughs> and I, and I, so I think look, one, one, one problem is there aren't a whole load of models for you go, OK, I'm going to go to this industry, see how they're doing it and copy it. May, maybe in finance, uh, in areas of finance. But you know what? One of the things I, that was what I thought. But as I get closer and cleaner, what? what I do now is not just national security focused. Um, ado adoption in finance and banking is much lower than you might expect to. Um, I think the, the barriers to, to adoption, one of them we've already talked about, you have to hold up a mirror to how decisions are made today, and that leads to an awful lot of resistance. One is an instinctive thing um, a, a kind of assumption about the superiority of, of human decision making, which I think is increasingly being exposed as flawed. One is a really important consideration, which is how little we actually understand human intelligence. It's kind of counter to all the arguments I'm making. We know an awful lot of facts about the brain. We do not know how the brain works. Right. Um, so so I, like a, a fundamental problem is not really understanding the process of human cognition in sufficient detail to, to, to be able to say, okay, this is the thing that humans do and therefore we can be completely confident we can delegate that with full authority and notwithstanding what I said before. So I, I think there is still, there's still an uncertainty factor. Um, and then there are there are barriers like in defense, one of the barriers has long been the need to label data, which increasingly large language models are doing faster and more accurately than humans can. Um, then you've got the ongoing challenge of like it's the first ICT programs are always the first thing to be cut in budgets. And so that slows down like there are many different things. Um, and I think there's something interesting there, which which we may come on to if it's of interest. But I think around the, the politics of information, which I think is really important to delaying adoption. But I leave that as a if it's of interest. That's a, that teases that one. So um, given that time is always against us, I'm going to just pull it across to a slightly different uh, perspective, if I may. Um, we've mentioned in this podcast, and Sean, you and I have discussed in specific detail in the past, ethical considerations, risk evaluations. I mentioned earlier the trust and assurance aspects of it, which suggests that we are being careful in our adoption of the AI capabilities. Um, potential adversaries may be less risk averse. And should that be a concern to us? Should we be looking at what AI could be used for and thinking about that in terms of mitigating risks that might be emerging from potential adversaries? Keith, let me start with you on that. So, yes, uh, I think if you, China in particular, has been talking about intelligence sized warfare at 
at least as early as 2011. So moving from informationized warfare to intelligenceized warfare. And just the fact that you set that kind of clear aspiration as early as that suggests that the adoption, the invention and so forth that is necessary to get you there has been going on for a while, while we have been busily saying, no, no, we never delegate authority to machines. There's got to be a human in the loop. We have all these concerns. We need to spend a load of time on AI ethics before we worry about adoption. Um, so I, th I think... Um, I think the ability of those systems to set a clear destination. Um, I think also the information in the end is power. And when you have such a centralized system as the CCP has, it's much easier to demand that everybody shares their information with the one centralized authority that then allows you to train models at scale. That's really hard in departments is kind of what I was getting to the, the politics of it. If you're sat in the home office, you don't necessarily want to make all of your data available to the MOD because it's probably going to be used against you in the great game of thrones that is Whitehall, right? That, that obviously goes on in other countries, but a really heavily centralized system doesn't have that that same distribution of power and therefore can centralize the data and information required to train models. Um, and we have some evidence, it's very difficult to track in detail, but that there have been significant investments in, in particularly in China. I think I wrote in 2018 that, that Russia was talking the talk on AI, but completely unable to walk the walk. I still think that's true. Uh, I think it's, I mean, all of its talent has been leaving since long before this war and now is leaving even faster. Um, it's that they have some, um, they continue to have an educational system that churns out people that can do the theoretical side brilliantly, but the, and their ability to apply is weakening every year. Um, and um, then it depends on where you set the boundaries of potential adversaries. They're the two that everybody's comfortable talking about, I think, because it's quite sure. clear. Sure. Um, so, yeah, hopefully that answers well, what the question. What about, just, just briefly, what about the non-state uh, armed groups that are out there that are, frankly, increasingly sophisticated in a technology sense? We've seen, haven't we, the emergence of groups that are able to do pretty amazing things in the information domain, frankly. Um, and I believe that technology is something that is spreading. It's diffused into the community yep. increasingly. Should we not be also concerned about not just the state, but also the non-state groups that are, might want to use these kind of technologies against us, against our societies? Again, short answer is yes. Longer answer is yes, but um, so if, I don't know if you saw the paper that was allegedly leaked from Google um, arguing that we have no moat, right? And the yeah. reason for that is because there are increasing proliferation of open source um, large language models. That They're slightly smaller, but their performance is um, practically comparable, yeah, even right. if on some benchmarks yeah. not as good. So, so I, I, there's no way, I don't think, to stop the continued proliferation through the open source movement so everybody will have access. The question is, what are the boundaries on what large language models can do? We're not going to answer that here. Um, will non-state groups have access? Absolutely, they will. Um, and will it make their planning more efficient and effective? Yes, I think so. It might also make their execution like their ability to learn lessons likewise um, but let's not forget that they face all the same adoption challenges that states sure. face too um, yeah, sure. so it, I don't think it's I don't think it's straightforward and there are still advantages to those that have access to the um, the scale of compute that you need um, and and that is also a barrier where we have a potential to restrict access I'm not absolutely but we can limit what non-state actors can do I think Okay, Sean, any final thoughts before we uh, go to uh, summarise and, and wrap up? Um, yeah, just to, just on the adversary side of things, I think, you know, once again, we're, we may be back to psychology. You know, in terms of uh, Russia, I completely agree with Keith. They're, they're nowhere near the, there yet. But say Putin did have some really strong, you know, AI capability as, a, as an autocratic despot, which he is, would he be willing to um, abdicate, you might say, um, decision-making to an AI 
perspective. Now, it, it, I, I think the answer to that is probably no, because he, you know, unaware of those consequences. But you could say, well, he almost does that now because he just believes, you know, certain people and then he acts accordingly. But, you know, for for example, fast forward five years and he's got some capability and he's still, you know, fighting and, and being attrited heavily within uh, eastern Ukraine. The algorithm might say, right, your only answer is tactical nuclear weapons um, in terms of a pure, you know, win, win, uh, win on the battlefield. But the political and strategic global implications of that are huge. Yeah. Would he make a rational decision on that? So, so I think, as always, everything comes down to the human in the loop. Um, in terms of, you know, ultimately, human beings are what decides up until they aren't, and and this may be another, uh, another um, podcast. Because at what stage yeah. do we lose control and we just go because we can't handle that 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 just massive amount of data? Do we go okay? We give up. Um, you know, the repercussions of that are, are huge, but. But, you know, coming back to to our part of it, you know, we have to follow an ethical model with AI so we don't get into that situation where individuals, you know, have too much uh, power and authority. The idea that we're morally obligated based on the logical position that you've quite eloquently described for me is quite compelling. But that argument must have been had. I mean, you've been in government and in around the government uh, bodies in the UK. Is that not is that not enough? Is that is that argument not strong enough to actually convince people that we really need to be making moves here? No, it's nothing like enough. Um, I mean, in part because people will give examples like the one you gave, Harry, right? The soldier said, "Well, what would have happened if a machine had delegated authority?" I'm like, "Well, um, what would have happened in a thousand other examples of precisely what has right. just been described?" And if we can run that and in testing and training or in simulations, and right, then it should be compelling. I know you'll get the flow of logic from the example that you gave, but not everybody does. Most people stop with the exception that says, "Hang on, what about when?" Yeah. And don't point to all the many examples. Do you remember the Aruzgan Sivkaz incident? That was another one yeah. I was going to bring yeah, up um yeah. so the, the the findings of that are public and they found that the the all of the information there was 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 there to make better decisions but the guy was just overwhelmed uh, yeah. which is not really a surprise and not picking out the information that he needed um so I, I think look we can find multiple examples of where we would have made better decisions in the real world these don't just have to be hypotheticals yeah, this, this, this feels this again the parallels for me are, are, are quite stark sean to the conversations we had in the past about the ability for people to understand what's available to the open source lends itself to needing to do it but why aren't they and often the argument that we've come to in the past keith is the lack of data literacy yeah knowing how to deal with data how to understand data in the sense of its flaws its its advantages yep. is actually one of the biggest gaps in the adoption of open source and other yeah. sources of intelligence that we just don't know how to deal with the data we're not yeah. we're not teaching kids at school are we data literacy per se yeah. we're not anymore than we can that, that I think is, is as much to do with you know it might be a generation thing so the people the senior decision makers are the ones that aren't data literate but I, but I go back to you know and I accept when I, when I said never in terms of but I know the intelligence community so well you know just changing happy to glad takes about three months so <laughs> dealing with that complexity as an analyst where you know you have to explain how you've done stuff that, that they're just going to be reticent i mean up until the point we go well this is so much more efficient it will help you again it's about the data management well either that sean either that or as keith's point earlier there'll be a war or some sort of conflict where frankly the rate of change is almost faster because almost always faster because it has to be and you know the the three months to change a word will suddenly become seconds because it won't make it will make no sense not to so i'm sure there'll be imperatives here yeah 
All right. Well, Keith, thank you for what has been, as I expected it to be, uh, a fascinating conversation. Uh, as ever with this podcast, I'm going to ask you to give uh, the listener a single takeaway, a final thought. What's the one thing you want the listener to take away from this conversation in AI? Um, unusually, I'll let Sean go after you, Keith, because uh, I often end up eating his sandwiches, as he says, um, and then I'll finish off. But Keith, what's the one thing you'd like the audience listening to this, the listener, as takeaway with regard to this conversation we've had, great conversation we've had about AI? I think the the speed of progress, so not assuming that where we are today is where we'll be tomorrow, and then linked to that is the moral obligation to adopt um, various different AI models when it can, um, when the evidence shows it can outperform us. Yeah, yeah, sure. So I, I think it, it's all about that we have no choice, you know, regardless of our personal views, to but to adopt, develop, and embrace AI. You know, and the, and the debate then comes as a critical enabler, or to to trust it and be agile enough that when it's appropriate, let it do its thing. But also for me, and you will know I say that, there has to be at some stage a, a human being that makes a decision on how much to use that, that, that information and not abdicate our responsibilities. Yeah, I think for me, uh, Keith, the, of all the things you've said in this episode, the one that will stay with me is the, the phrase moral obligation. Uh, based logically on the number of false positives that uh, AI can predict, predictably produce uh, versus the human. And then that associated with that is that um, imposter syndrome mirror we're going to put up in front of the decision maker that helps them understand just how flawed they are as decision makers. So for me, the moral obligation piece is something I would like to uh, dig further into, because for me, that challenges the lack of adoption, the lack of widespread adoption. It's really saying a bit like we've said, Sean, with open source, it is almost negligent that you're not using the open source potential to the extent you should and could be, and therefore you must. Well, you've kind of said that, Keith, in, an, in a slightly different way about the moral obligation of the lower force positives we can predict with the use of AI. So for me, that's a takeaway for today. Let me finish, though, as I started with a huge, huge thank you for what I knew would be and indeed was a great conversation. Um, it's almost every podcast episode that I say this at the end that we will ask you to come back and revisit some of that. <laughs> I think probably the areas I'd like to dig in further for the future, though, would be what are we learning about the acceleration of AI and what is that doing to the arguments for adoption? For me, that's an area I'd like to dig into further. Keith, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today and for the listener to hear what I think has been a fantastic podcast. Thank you. Harry, Sean, thanks so much for having me. It's been great fun. Good stuff. Sean, thanks as ever. We'll speak again soon. Look forward to speaking to you. And the next episode of this will look I think, to start looking in some of the more contemporary issues we're seeing about how OSINT is being used in, in anger against some of the uh, the issues we're seeing in the big wide world. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you again, Keith, for joining us. Thank you. Goodbye. Thanks for joining us this week on The World of Intelligence. Make sure to visit our website, janes.com slash podcast, where you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, so you'll never miss an episode.